0: But back in my day, I was quite the athlete. In fact, I, when Chris and I were working at Good News, one of the kids there one time told me, you are the most athletic white guy I've ever met. Now, I don't know if that says more about me or the other white guys that he had met. But Growing up, I was able to compete in pretty much any sport. If it was a sport, I could be good enough to compete But that meant that I was also very competitive. I often found myself in arguments, looking back to my shame. But I remember one time, very foolishly, when I was in junior high, I grew up a soccer player. I played basketball here and there, but I was more of a soccer player. Basketball, I could play, but I didn't necessarily understand all the rules I remember one time in PE class in junior high, I believe it was seventh grade, we were playing basketball and some, one of my friends was driving the lane, he was going up for a layup, I saw him coming so I bumped him with my shoulder thinking I'll I'll throw him off a little bit, he missed the layup, but the PE teacher called a foul on me. He said, that is a block, you can't do that. I didn't necessarily understand the rules and I said, no, that's not a block, That's not a block. And he said, that is a block. No, I was just standing there and I leaned over a little bit. That's not a block. I didn't touch him with my hand. That doesn't matter. That is a block. He even said, Josh, I've been playing basketball longer than you've been alive. I know the rules. And I argued and I argued and ended up getting in trouble. And I came home to tell my dad about how crazy my PE coach was, and my dad goes, he's right. (laughs) That's a block. I was too foolish to listen to the man whose job it was to teach me the rules of the game. I thought I knew better, even though I knew good and well that I didn't know the rules. I was just too competitive. He knew the rules. In fact, it was his job to teach me the rules, and I wouldn't listen. And those who fail to listen... Often fail to learn. As we come to John 9 this morning, we see a group who fail to listen, who have their own ideas, and they're not willing to listen. And yet, at the same time, as we work our way through John chapter 9, we see a story that follows a man's journey to faith. See, there's a contrast here in John 9. From a man, who comes to faith and those who reject faith, reject Christ. So as we work our way through this, this morning we'll see the blind, the bold, and the blessed. First thing we see is the blind in John 9 verses 1 to 7. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. John chapter 9 takes place sometime between John chapter 8 and John chapter 10. It's pretty self-explanatory. But John chapter 9, John chapter 8, we have the feast of booths, John chapter uh, 7 and 8, we have the feast of booths and John chapter 10 we have the feast of dedication. John chapter 9 takes place sometime between those two feasts. Jesus is still in Jerusalem with his disciples. And he's walking around and he passes by and he finds a man bo- blind from birth. At this point in the book of John, we know that this meeting is not by chance. Jesus did not just happen to walk this way. Jesus is very purposeful in what he does and where he goes and when he goes there. So Jesus passed by, saw the man blind. From birth, A blind, a man who had never seen, a man who had only known darkness. He sees this man. His disciples see this man. And they ask him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents said he was born blind. They assumed that because he was born blind, someone must have sinned. Either his parents had had done some kind of of grievous sin that had reached down to him, or maybe he had even sinned in the womb, which was not beyond rabbinical thinking at that time. In fact, this was a common view. They viewed sin as, as as the primary cause, or maybe even the exclusive cause of suffering. If there is suffering, there must be sin. Now we know that's true in a general sense, right? There is suffering because there is sin. If there was no sin, there would be no suffering. But that's not always necessarily the case in individual manners, matters. Someone must have sinned, either him or his parents. In their minds, this man's handicap reveals a hidden sin in the family. But Jesus answers, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. This man's blindness is not punishment, but it is purposeful. There's a reason for it. It is purposeful that the works of God should be revealed in him. God did not take a day off when this this man was born. This man's blindness was no accident. It was purposeful by God that the works of God should be revealed in him. What we are so often tempted to see as a mistake or as weakness is a purposeful act of God to bring glory to himself. In this chapter, we see specifically how God is glorified in this man's weakness. It's not true that we always get to see that, is it? Sometimes someone is born with an infirmity. Sometimes someone is born with a handicap and we don't know why and we never see why. but that doesn't make the fact any less true that God is sovereign in that and God is doing something in that. This man's blindness does not limit his opportunity to praise God. In fact, what we'll see here is that it magnifies the impactfulness of his opportunity. It is because he is born blind that the glory of God shines forth. I think so often we view handicaps, things that we look at as bad things. We fail to realize the grace of God in that. And I say that as someone whose mom is handicapped. Someone whose mom has struggled with the limitations of her legs her entire life. it's not an accident. It doesn't mean that God's not good. God has given her that for a purpose, for his glory. God made this man blind for a purpose, for God's glory. Whatever weakness you may have this morning, whatever it is that you are struggling with, God has given it to you on purpose for his glory. You may be limited in what you are do what you can do, but you are not limited in your opportunity to glorify God even in the midst of infirmity. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but it was a purposeful work of God that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. While it is day, while I am here, Jesus is on a mission. He has a goal. He is accomplishing something. He has come for a purpose. And while he is here, there is work to do. That last phrase, verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world, does not mean that once Jesus leaves, he will stop being the light of the world. Rather, while Jesus is in the world, the light is triumphing. But a time is coming. As Jesus is speaking this, when, when he knows that he is going back to heaven. He knows that his disciples will be left alone. At that time, the darkness will once again start creeping in. But you must stand strong. The light will continue to shine and the cross will still be effective. But the darkness will come back. It will fight back with a vengeance. But now, while I am here, I have work to do. When he said this things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Notice, I think it's very important to notice this. Notice that this man does not seek Jesus out, but Jesus seeks him out. This is not one of those cases where Jesus is walking by and the man is crying out, Savior, heal me! Lord, look over here! This man is sitting here and he's minding his own business, and Jesus points him out. Jesus goes to him. And Jesus acts. Jesus stops. This man who mattered to no one else who was walking on that street that day mattered to Jesus. So he spat on the ground, he made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. It's interesting to read all the different theories about why Jesus did this. The reality is we don't know. We don't know why Jesus did that. Did Jesus need the clay to make this man's eyes see? No. He didn't need the clay. It could have been a a picture pointing back to creation. It could have simply been a small grace, something that felt good on this man's eyes. We don't know why. We don't know why. But Jesus cares enough to stop to interact with this blind man. And he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. Jesus, who was sent by God, sends him to the pool called sent. This miracle is meant to highlight Jesus' identity as the Son of God, the one who's uniquely sent by God. In fact, we will see in the course of this chapter that that is exactly what this miracle does. And so he went and he washed and he came back seeing. I can't help but wonder what this man was thinking as he's walking to this pool. Did he know that he was going to see? Maybe it's not recorded here. Maybe Jesus whispered to him, go to the pool and wash and you'll come back seeing. Maybe he knew, maybe he didn't. I don't know. But this man gets up and he goes and he's walking to the pool. And who knows what's going through his mind. And he gets there and he washes and he comes back and he sees. And he sees. He came back seen. In fact, notice one thing to pay attention to as we work our way through this chapter is notice this man's journey from darkness into light. Both physically, he's given sight. A man born blind now sees. But spiritually, as we work our way through this chapter, the amazing work of Jesus and giving him sight leads to an even greater work where Jesus gives him life. In fact, you'll notice as we progress through this chapter, this man will go from seeing Jesus is just a great man to a prophet, to ultimately to his Savior. And physical sight here in verse seven is just step one. The blind man now sees. As you come to verses 8 to 34, then we see the bold. The man who was blind, the man who had no power, or influence whatsoever, becomes the bold. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is this not he who sat and begged? Is this not he who begged? How is this man seeing? His transformation is so startling, so surprising that those who know him cannot begin to fathom what has happened. Who has seen the blind given their sight? This is an amazing thing. In fact, it's so amazing that they start coming up with, with other options. Well, well, maybe this is just someone who looks like him. Maybe he had a long-lost identical twin that, that no one knew about, who just happens to show up. I, I love the humor of verse 9. Some say, this is he. Others said, well, it's just someone who's like him. He's staying there in the middle of all this. He's going, it's me, guys. It is me. It is me. They so said to him, how were your eyes opened? He answers and he says, a man called Jesus. Now, now notice at this point, what we'll see in verse 12, they'll ask him, where is he? He says, I don't know. At this point, this man has never seen Jesus. Remember? Jesus healed him when he was blind. He sent him away. Jesus is now gone. This man has never seen Jesus. He's just, he's heard of him. He's heard his name. So he answered and said, a man called Jesus a man called Jesus. He made clay, he anointed my eyes. He said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and I wash, and I received sight. I said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. I don't know. All I know is I can see. So they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now, Now as I read this, I don't think, in verses 13 here, I don't think there's any kind of ill intent on their part. I don't think the crowd is thinking, oh, this is our chance to join with the Pharisees to trap Jesus. I think they're literally in shock. They don't know what to make of this. And so where else do you go but to the religious leaders? Something has happened. Help us to understand this. What is going on? So they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now verse 14 makes a very interesting and important note. It was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. It was a Sabbath. I don't think that's an accident. Jesus could have walked that way any day. He walked that way on a Sabbath. In fact, ever since Jesus has healed a lame man, At the Pool of Bethesda in John 5, this Sabbath issue has been the hill on which these religious leaders have chosen they want to kill Jesus. This is the issue on which they are going to get him. This is the issue that brings confrontation. I think Jesus does this because he knows it's going to force them to come face to face with this. It's going to force them to face it. They can't ignore this. They can't just write it off. So the Pharisees also asked him when he gets there how he'd received his sight. And He said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Now notice all throughout this chapter, his story never changes. His story is the same all throughout. This man put clay. Clay on my eyes, I washed and I see. What changes is his view of who Jesus is. Verse 11 he says, "A man called Jesus." Next he's going to say, "A prophet. Here he says, "He put clay on my eyes, I washed and I see." And the Pharisee said to him, "This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath." It's a clearly biased and exaggerated conclusion. In fact, Jesus already answered this charge back in John 5 when he dealt with the issue there. But they're not interested in hearing Jesus' explanation. They're interested in pushing their agenda. Imagine having a man stand before you who has just been given sight. A man born blind from birth. An amazing thing has been done, and you say, well, it was done on the Sabbath. Others, though, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And so there's a division among them. In fact, giving sight to the blind is a very powerful sign. It's a specific sign attributed to Messiah, as we saw this morning, as we read Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9, the one who will come, who will give sight to the blind. And Luke 7, as John is in prison and he is struggling, he's fallen into depression and he sends his messengers to Jesus to say, is he the Christ? And what does Jesus say? Go back to John and tell him that the blind have received sight. Some of these religious leaders are starting to pick up on this. They cannot ignore what Jesus is doing. This is a clear sign. How can a man who is a sinner do such things? You're starting to wonder, maybe the problem is not with this man. Maybe the problem is with our interpretation of the Sabbath law. Maybe the issue is with us, not with him. But the rest of the Pharisees don't agree. They say to the blind man again, What do you say about him? You're the one who was there. What do you say? It's not that, that this blind man has any authority. But he's an eyewitness. What do you say? He said he is a prophet. He's a prophet. Again, it's not his story that has changed, it's his view of Jesus that is progressing. As he meditates on this, as he interacts, as he tells his story, he comes to see this is not just a great man, this is a great prophet. There's something unique, there's something special. Come to verse 18, it seems that the the Pharisees, who were so divided in verse 16, have come to to some kind of understanding among themselves. They go forward with their inquisition into what is going on. The Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight. They're going to turn, overturn every stone. They're going to look for, for every possible inconsistency, every possible little thing that they can use to prove their point. They don't believe because they don't like his answer. And the sad truth is that the truth is never enough for those who have an agenda. And that's exactly what these religious leaders have. Religious leaders have. They don't necessarily believe the man, so they call the parents of the man. Surely there's, there's someone who can, who can tell Maybe he wasn't really bur- blind from birth. Maybe he was just lost his sight after he was born at some point. He can't know whether he was born blind or not. He can't remember. So maybe he lost his sight at a young age, and, and later on, it, now it's just come back. We'll ask his parents. So they asked him, saying, is your son, who you say was born blind, is this your son who you say was born blind, how then does he now see Parents answered, well, we know he's our son, and we know he was born blind. But, by what means he now sees, we don't know. Who opened his eyes? We don't know. He's of age, ask him, he will speak. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. The agenda that these religious leaders have is not something that is hidden. This is not something they're doing in the dark. This is something that that is very widely, clearly known. And anyone who opposes them will be shut up. Will be kicked out. It's sad that his parents don't have the same boldness of their son. But as we come to the end of verse 23, his blindness from birth has been confirmed beyond doubt. Clearly, a work has been done. So they again call the man who was, born, who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. Give God the glory. Speak the truth. I love this man's answer. He said to him, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. This man is still not quite sure about Jesus. He's progressed from he's a man to he's a prophet. What kind of prophet, what he's like, if he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Though I was blind, now I see. I love those words. How many of us can share that same testimony and we look back to when we had faith in Christ? Though I was blind, now I see. Despite the best efforts of the religious leaders, they cannot change the truth. This man was blind, now this man sees. I find it interesting that this man and the religious leaders start with the same facts, and yet their interpretation of those facts takes them in completely different places. And really it reveals their hearts. The religious leaders jump to a conclusion that Jesus is a sinner. The blind man sticks to the truth. He He is driven not by an agenda, but by the truth. I don't know if he's a sinner. What I know is I was blind and now I see and I want to know more. The religious leaders take those same facts and they jump to a conclusion that fits the agenda that they are trying to to, to drive. They've already made up their minds. So they say to him again, what did, you, what did he do? How did he open your eyes? This is like an interrogation. One of those crime shows when they, they lock them in the little box. They ask them questions. They just ask the same questions over and over and over. Is this man's story going to change? Is he making this up? Surely there's something that we've missed. And if we ask him enough, the truth will come out. Again, I I love this man's wit. For a man being born blind, a man who was the outcast of society, he's a smart man. I told you already, and you did not listen. The problem is not that I have not been clear. The problem is that you're not listening. The problem is that you don't want to hear. You don't like my answer. I've told you. Why could you possibly want to hear it again? Is it because you want to become his disciples? Is that what you're doing here? You you want more information so you can go and you can join him. He reviled him. You are his disciple. As if that's some kind of a, a bad thing. As if that's an insult. You are his disciple. We are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't know where he is from. Unfortunately, their ignorance is purposeful because Jesus has told them on multiple occasions where he is from. He has told them on multiple occasions where he is going. They choose not to know him. They choose not to listen. The man answers again. Again, I love the condemning logic of a simple man who so clearly sees what the wise cannot. This chapter is is chock full of irony. You have a blind man who sees what those who can see cannot see. So the man answered and he said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone should open the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The man born blind, the man with no education, the man who has been an outcast of society sees so clearly. But these religious leaders refuse to see. This sign that he has done leads to one clear conclusion, that he is from God. God. What's interesting is that I do not think think at this point that the blind man is arguing that Jesus is the Messiah. He's not here arguing that Jesus is the Son of God. He's not quite there yet. He's just simply saying, this man is from God. God has sent him. I don't know in what sense he's sent from God, but he is sent from God. How can you, the religious leaders, not see that? Just look at what he has done. Look at his works that testify to the fact that he is from God. They don't want to see it. And so they answer and they say to him, you were completely born in sins and you are teaching us. And they cast him out. They cast him out. Once again, like they did with Jesus, they resort to self-righteousness and to name calling Yet perhaps verse 34 is the most ironic verse of this entire chapter. You were completely born in sins. You see, that's their problem. That's their problem. They fail to see that they were born in sins. In their minds, they don't need a Savior I'm not born in sins. You are born in sins. The reality is that this man was born physically blind, but they were all born spiritually blind. They were all born in darkness. The Bible tells us we are all Sinners. We have all sinned. Even our righteousness is as filthy rags. But Jesus is the light of the world. In fact, Jesus will pick up on that as we come in a second to verses 40 to 41. As we come to verse 35, though, we see the blessed, the man who believes. Again in verse 35, Jesus now comes back onto the scene. Jesus in his great compassion and care. Jesus who sought this man out in the beginning now seeks him out again. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And so Jesus goes and Jesus finds him again a second time. find that fascinating. This man had been a cast out of society his entire life because he was born blind. Because everyone assumed that he was in sin. He receives his sight. And now he finds himself cast out again because he will not stop telling the truth. Because he, who was blind, can actually see the truth and testifies to the truth and yet they ignore him and they cast him out once again. This man finds himself cast out again and Jesus comes to him and he says, do you believe the Son? Do you believe in the Son of God? It's an invitation. We've watched this man progress in his understanding through this chapter as he has reflected on the work of what God has done that work that points to the fact that Jesus is, in fact, someone unique. He's someone special. He is from God. And now Jesus comes with an invitation to believe that Jesus is not just from God, but he is the one who is uniquely sent by God. He's the one who reveals God to man. He is, in fact, God incarnate. Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him. And it is he who is talking with you. The answer reminds me of Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. Where she says, Well, when the Messiah comes, he will make all he will tell us all things. And what does Jesus say? I am he. A very similar answer, he. Who is he? I am he. You've been, you've both seen him and it is he who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped. This is meant to be. Jesus' work. Testify so powerfully and so clearly to Jesus' identity. This man is ready to believe. As we come to verse 38, we see the second miracle. In fact, the greatest miracle of John chapter 9. Because the great miracle of John 9 is not a blind man who is given his sight, but a dead man who is made alive in Christ. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. For judgment I have come into this world. It seems to contradict John three seventeen, where Jesus says, uh, in fact, turn over there, Turn back to John three seventeen, where it says, "For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved." But it's not a contradiction, because the purpose of Jesus' coming was to save. but the result of saving some means judging others. Whosoever will can see, but there are those who choose not to see, and they are condemned already. You see, Jesus came to bring salvation. The incarnation brings a salvation. It does not bring new condemnation. Incarnation brings hope. Those who refuse are not newly condemned. We are all condemned. We are all sinners. We are sinners already. Christ came not bringing new condemnation. He came bringing hope. He came bringing salvation. But those who refuse him are condemned already. It's not a new condemnation. It's a condemnation that has been theirs since the day they were born. Because they are sinners, because we are sinners. For judgment I have come into the world, that those who do not see may see. That those who are born in darkness, whose eyes are open to the light, who believe, that they may see. And that those who see, or you could say those who think they see, are made blind. To them, The gospel is a stumbling block, and they face judgment. It's all about how they react to Jesus. Either they believe, either they see, and they are saved, or they reject, and they are judged. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words, and they said to him, Are we blind also? Are we blind also? Again, there's irony here, because they take offense at what Jesus has said, but they fail to realize that Jesus didn't say that they're the ones who are blind that may see. They're the ones who think they see, and therefore they are blind. No! You're not the blind. You're the one who thinks you see. That's your problem. You do not realize that you were born in sin. And therefore you reject the light of the world. In fact, that's what Jesus says in verse 41. If you were blind, you would have no sin. If you were blind, your eyes would be opened to the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you would turn to me in faith and you would find salvation. But now you say, we see. You think you see. And so your sin remains. You're not blind. You're simply refusing to see. And that's even worse. Because those who know they don't see know to seek sight. Those who think they see are satisfied in the darkness. John chapter 9 begins with a man who was born blind from birth but it ends with those who are blind by choice. As we come to the end of John chapter 9 this morning, there's a couple things that we see. First, I think in John chapter 9 we see that saving faith is simple faith. This man born blind was no scholar. This man born blind knew a lot less than his religious leaders knew. And yet he knew enough to believe in Jesus because he saw what Jesus did and he believed what Jesus said. That's all it takes. Saving faith is simple faith. It's not about what you do In fact, there's nothing you can do. You are a sinner. You are born in darkness. I am a sinner born in darkness. But Jesus is the light of the world. So the question this morning is this. Won't you see? Won't you believe? Won't you say with the blind man, I once was blind, but now I see? You can be saved from your sins this morning. You can turn from your sins and you can turn to Christ and you can believe. Won't you look to the miracles of John? Won't you look to the cross of Christ? Won't you look to the empty tomb? And won't you see and won't you believe? Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus died for you. He bore the punishment for your sins that you deserved so that he could give you life. Won't you believe? Secondly, to believers, to those of us who are in Christ, I think in John chapter 9, we see a proper response to the amazing grace of God. This man confesses, Lord, I believe, and then he falls down and he worships. It's our privilege to gather here and to worship, to sing songs of praise to the God who has saved us from our sins. But it's also our privilege to then go and to boldly speak. This man is not intimidated by those who are smarter than him. He's not intimidated by the religious elite of his day. He's not intimidated by the the cultural norms of his day. He stands and he boldly speaks what he knows to be true. I once was blind, now I see. He doesn't change his tune based on who he's talking to. His message stays the same. I once was blind and now I see. Why aren't we so bold? Brothers and sisters in Christ, you have been given so much more in Christ than mere physical sight. So stand boldly and testify of what God has done in you through Christ. Point others to the light. bold I think the sad thing is if we are honest with ourselves many of us must admit that we'd be far more amazed by a man given sight than by a sinner saved from sins How many times have we seen someone turn from their sins and turn to Christ and it doesn't amaze us, it doesn't move us, but if we were to see a blind man given sight, praise God! The greatest miracle is not a blind man given his sight, it's a dead man given life in Christ. Rejoice in that reality. Rejoice in the God who has given you life in Christ. And if you're here this morning and you don't have that life, if you're here this morning and you have questions about who Jesus is or or if you've really placed your faith in Christ, come forward. I would love nothing more than to open the Bible. I'm not going to force you into the decision. I want to answer your questions. I want to point you to Christ. Won't you come forward? Even as we sing our closing song, all I have is Christ. Won't you come?